Patience and Esther are here. It's great to have you guys here this morning. What a blessing. Amen. Well, we are very close to the end of our series uh, in Revelation on Jesus' words to the church. We're actually on church number seven. So we've uh, gone through six churches of Jesus' words, speaking to them and knowing that when he speaks to them, he's speaking to us. And uh, the children are filling out their outlines. Uh, you're supposed to fill out three of those churches. And I'll actually say the churches so you can get an idea. So what are the churches? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Last few weeks, Ed preached on Sardis and talked to us about the nice church. And then Josh, last week on the uh, Philadelphia church, the church with the open door. And uh, this week, um, we're coming to Laodicea. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, they saved the best for last? How many have heard that phrase, right? It's a great phrase. But in speaking to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus saves the worst to last. Because we're looking at the church of uh, Laodicea, uh, which he has nothing to commend for, and, and they receive the strongest warning Jesus has given to any of the six previous churches. Yet, he also gives the most wonderful invitation. And we're going to be looking at that today. So let's read his words to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea. We start with this idea. He's writing to the city of Laodicea. If you, if you want to put that map up uh, for a second, and kids, if you're looking for churches and how to spell them, they're right up there. So there you go. I give you a little hint. But uh, Laodicea sort of stands about 100 miles away from Ephesus, and it's six miles from Heropolis and 10 miles from Colossae. It's right in the middle of what's called the Lycus River Valley. And so that's where it's located. And the city was noted for its banking and gold reserves, textile manufacturing, especially expensive black wool, which was the high fashion of the day, and its famous eye solve, 
which uh, was used throughout the ancient world to cure different ailments in the eyes. So Laodicea was known as an affluent society. They were considered probably the richest culture in Asia at that time. If you would put up the picture of the city, just to give an idea of that, that'd be great. So this is a sort of artist uh, redoing what the city might have looked like. It was an amazing city uh, for that time. And as you can see, it had theaters and stadiums, libraries. It had a medical school that was known throughout the world. Uh, this was quite a place. Um, uh, so it was famous for black wool. So put that up. Uh, uh, I think there's the black ram that's next. Yes, there you go. So uh, black wool from this lamb, and they made garments uh, from this. So you could put the garments up too. Just uh, so uh, that's quite fashionable, isn't it? <laughs> it was the only uh, garment I could find. I was trying to find it, like, because they understand it was high fashion. But of course, as you know, uh, this looked like what the soldiers might wear. But anyway, it's an idea of the black wool and how they used it. But this city had one shortcoming, and it was their water supply. There was not enough water for the city. So they had to develop a massive aqueduct system that was over six miles long that brought water in from the hot springs of the Hierapolis. You want to just give me a, that picture of looking. So this is sort of how the aqueducts were. You see how they were raised up and came down, and this was like a six miles long coming from the, the hot springs and uh, basically coming into uh, the city itself for their drinking water. Uh, sort of like what we see if, uh, you know, if you lived by a reservoir, which I did when I was younger, um, and we said, oh, is that where we get our water from? And it was like, yes, they run through pipes, but that's the way we got our water through that system. So today, Laodicea would be a mixture of Wall Street and Fort Dix, and Paris and New York for its fashion. It sort of was this amazing city. So get an idea of this, uh, this city. This is what, what they were all about. And now Jesus comes and he describes who he is. And, and if, the, if the children are looking at this, you need to fill out, fill out what, the, what is that. So be looking at this picture that comes up and listen to the explanation. So uh, you can put that up. So this is Jesus speaking about he, what, who he was. He was the Amen. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. And, and it means that all Jesus says is true. So his message to the church of Laodicea and to us here today must be undoubtedly true and accepted. He also is the faithful and true witness. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Jesus was the true witness. He brought and represented the whole character of God. It's just amazing. And then he's the beginning of the creation of God. He has in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is he who begins the creation, its first cause. The church of Laodicea must emphasize the doctrines of creation and the Sabbath. So this is quite a description that Jesus gives. And the other ones, he talked about what he does, but here he talks about who he is, and it's just a very powerful statement, and I think it needed because he's basically getting ready to say, this is who I am, and this is what I know about you. 
okay, maybe I better listen. Maybe I better listen to this one who's the amen, the faithful and true witness, to the one who truly is the Alpha and the Omega, through whom all things come through. So, here's what he says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, certainly these words are referring to their spiritual condition. But Jesus is using a familiar image of the lukewarm water supply. See, when this water came down through the pipes, it wasn't cold water that they were getting. It was a warm water, a lukewarm water that they had to drink. And has anybody ever had to drink something lukewarm, like lukewarm soda or, or really lukewarm water that was a little nasty or something like that. Anybody have a drink that? Because the tendency is, is that you really want to spit it out of your mouth. You don't want this. And, and Jesus is using this familiar image to the people there to give them an idea that being lukewarm, both with water but more than that, with their spiritual lives, leaves a bad taste in his mouth. He would rather spit it out. He would basically say outright denial was better than phony pity or piety. And there was more hope for the hopefully antagonistic than for the coolly indifferent, hot or cold, but not lukewarm. There's something about this. So you're thinking about this. Think about some of the words you might use for being lukewarm. Indifferent, compromising, apathetic, in name only, veneer Christianity. You ever hear that word? That idea, it's like very superficial. Empty. Just enough to think you have enough. This idea of lukewarmness. Trying to please both the world and Jesus. All these are ways that you can look at and begin to describe. What, what is it to be lukewarm? But maybe it's better to talk to you a little bit more about what you've experienced. Have you ever experienced being with someone who's indifferent or lukewarm? Has anybody ever been on a sports team? Now, a sports team I'm supposed to be committed to. I'm a part of this team. And every member is supposed to be going at it with zeal. We're a part of a team. We have a goal. We're going to win. We're going to do this together. We're going to accept our roles, and we're going to go forward. But have you ever played with someone and you look at them and they're like, eh, I don't really care. And they're indifferent. And there you are, you're struggling hard. And you look at them and you're like, I'm ready to kill this person. Like, what is the story? If you don't want to do it, don't be on the team. Or maybe you're doing a school project. And you got a team of people. And you're supposed to be working hard. And you want to get an A. But you're working with another person. I don't even care if I get a D. I don't care. Just do work. That's not good, is it? That doesn't work. There's something wrong with that. I don't want that person around me. I don't want them as part of my team. We can do that with a number of things. In the workplace, people that you're working with. Um, 
And, and sort of that's the idea here that, that Jesus is getting across. Like, this is Jesus. This is his who he just described himself to be. He's the God of the universe. And he's called us to himself. And how do we act in relationship with him? And I love what Spurgeon says here in this quote. We might even say that lukewarmness is the natural tendency of our fallen nature. Alas, this state of lukewarmness is so congenial with human nature that it's hard to fetch men from it. Cold makes us shiver, and great heat causes us pain, but a tepid bath is comfort itself. Such a temperature suits human nature. The world is always at peace with a lukewarm church, and such a church is always pleased with itself. Isn't that great? No conflict. Yeah. That's just like bridge, right? We have no conflict here. There's nothing going on. We, we have very easy discussions. There's no some hard things for us to discuss. No. But this idea that a church is pleased with itself, and many churches can get this way, right? They can be going on for years and just get very pleased with themselves. But Jesus goes on to say that this is true of the church in Laodicea. It's a church that's pleased with itself. Listen to how he interacts with this, verses 17 through 20. You, Laodicea, and by God's grace, not you, Bridge, say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Here's, here's some facts about Laodicea. And, and one of the reasons that Jesus talks about this, it's very evident. Laodicea takes pride in being a self-reliant city. They were destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, and they refused help from Rome. They were going to rebuild our city for themselves, and they did. They rebuilt the whole city, even better than it was before. And when the church in Jerusalem, because they were struggling with drought and everything, asked for an offering... They sent them 22 and a half pounds of gold. That's startling for that time. This was a city that was affluent. They loved it. They knew it. And they felt very self-sufficient. You see, that's another aspect of lukewarmness is this idea that we can depend on ourselves. We're very self-sufficient. There's a song that Frank Sinatra sings. Maybe you've heard it. I did it my way. Anybody ever heard that song? I did it my way. Yeah, this is, this is a song declaring self-sufficiency. Right? For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of the one who kneels. The records show I took the blows and did it. Ah, you got it, you see? 
Oh, we've all bought into it. You see, this has become a global sensation, this song. World leaders played it at the retirement parties. It tops the ratings of songs in the UK for funerals. Amazing. All because it speaks to the human mentality we see fully exposed in Jesus' words here to Laodicea. So listen to this quote from Wolvord. The Laodiceans are typical of their modern world, which revels in that which the natural eye can see, but is untouched by the gospel and does not see beyond the veil of the material to the unseen and real eternal spiritual riches. Young people, if you're listening, this is another answer to your questions, I think. See, Jesus is saying this whole idea of self-sufficiency, of self-reliance, this is, this is an illusion. This is not reality. See, you're playing God, and you don't have the answers or the power to play God. So I'm going to tell you what your real condition is. I want you to know what your real condition is. You're wretched and pitiful in need of mercy. You're poor and blind and naked. In contrast to the very things that they took pride in, right? The whole idea that they were rich. They were the banking center, you know? They were Fort Dix in Wall Street. They had all the gold. And you're naked. They were the fashion center. They had the great garments of wool, and they were making all of that. And they were the place that had the medicine for eyes that would bring healing. And I love the way Jesus says it. He says, no, you don't understand something. You're poor, blind, and naked. Those things of the world, with regard to who you are spiritually, they mean nothing. You say you're in need of nothing, but I tell you, you're in need of everything. In reality, it starts with your very breath that you breathe. You have no ability. I give you life. I've created all these things. I keep it going. And you have no answers for the deepest needs of your life. You cannot control your circumstances, and yet you're sitting there satisfied in your self-sufficiency until something happens. And then you may come running to God. He lays that out very clearly. And it's amazing because then he says, well, let me now counsel you. Let me now counsel you. I'm counseling you to do something. I'm counseling you to buy gold. But what we know about in the scripture, gold represents something. Gold represents faith. Buying gold. Peter tells us that faith is of greater weight and worth 
on gold. Buy white clothes. What we know in Scripture is white clothes is a representation of righteousness, of that very thing we need before God that Jesus brings through his redemptive work. That which we see in Revelation 19 is the clothes that the brides wear as they enter into heaven. And then the last thing is, buy what? You buy sight. You begin to see, not from the worldly perspective, but a godly perspective. So when he's speaking about this, he's speaking about something very clear. And so the question would naturally be, how do I do that? How do I buy? What's that look like? And, and, And here he does something that's so touching and unexpected after he talked about spitting them out of his mouth. It's a manifestation of love to those who deserve the least among the seven churches. This this rebuke doesn't come from someone who's hostile, but pursuing them in love. Right now, God in this moment is pursuing us in love. I love what Hebrews 12 says in verses 5 and 6. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. He's coming and he's calling us out and he's basically saying, I see your heart. I got to tell you, it nauseates me. I want to spit you out of my mouth, but I love you so much. I want to counsel you. I want to bring you to a place. I want to say to you, here is what you need to do. And who as a father or mother does not do that with their child? I remember, you ever tell your child you're disciplined because they, you love them? You get a really good response from that, right? But it's true. It's true. When I see something wrong in my child, I want to be able to go to them. And my discipline is a goal to reach their conscience. And I remember we started, as they got older, we, we were talking about how, how we do this. And if you, knew, if you know me, what would be my natural reaction if my kids sort of did something against my will? What do you think would happen? Yeah, I'd be pretty quiet, right? No, I'd be pretty loud, and I'd be pretty quick. And a lot of times, before I even talked to my wife, I'd be doing that. But what we found out was, okay, the best thing to do here is so we can talk about it, is to say to our child, you know what? We're going to give you a day, or we're going to give you two days. We want you to think about it, and then we want you to come back and tell us what your punishment should be. And then we would talk about it so that we could be on the same page. And I will tell you, there were a couple times my kids came back with a worse punishment than we were going to give them. But it gave them opportunity to think about this outside of reacting to us and our punishment. And and this is sort of what God does. He sort of comes in and he begins to lay things out there and he begins to use this so that we can look at our own hearts. That's what he wants us to do. Look at your own heart. See where it's at. 
That's where he's going with this. And it's very powerful. And so here's what he says. He says, turn, repent, repent. This call to turn from being lukewarm and be inspired by the Spirit to have living faith. But, but how do I do that? How do I do that? I'm going to repent, but what? here's where he goes. He says, let me come. Let me come in. You're holding me out. Behold, I knock at the door. Behold, I knock at the door. Now he doesn't, it isn't just the church itself, but it's personal. Anyone, I'm calling you. Come, I'm knocking at the door. Can you put that picture up? I'm knocking at the door. You see, there's no handle on Jesus' side. The handle's on the other side. We need to open the door for him to come in. We need to do that. And that's what the work of the Spirit is, right? The Spirit begins to move our hearts to see this. So God is working in all of this. And I love this picture. Come in and... And, and he doesn't say, I'm just going to come in. He says, I'm going to come in. We're going to sit down. We're going to have dinner. We're going to talk. I love it. It's Italian. Like, man, this is great. I'm going to come in during your supper time, and I want to be able to sit down. I want to talk with you. Like, I don't know about you, but at our table, um, that's when everything took place. We would talk, we would chat, we would yell, we would scream. When Barb fr first came to, uh, to one of our Sunday meals, uh, she had quite an adventure because she had no idea the decibel level and she had no idea that everybody was going to be talking past and through one another and joining in on a different conversation. And when she left, she said, I have the biggest headache. But the reality is, in these meals, we shared things with one another. We shared intimate things with one another. We talked with one another. And that's the picture that Jesus has given us. This is who I am. This is what I want to be to you. I want to have this type of relationship where we're intimate enough that we can talk about anything that's going on. Behold, come. That's repentance. is. Turn. Turn to me. Turn to me. Open the door and let me in. And I'm going to give you. Your buying is really my grace to you because it's really me giving you what you need, giving you faith, giving you righteousness, giving you sight and wisdom and truth. Hallelujah. I love the picture in Isaiah 55. I think it sort of fits with this. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 5. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Come. Throughout the Bible, come. 
Behold, I knock. Come. Bring your heart. Bring these things. And guess what will happen? Listen to verse 21. To the one who does, you become victorious. I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. When we come, when we recognize where our hearts are, when we recognize where we've been and we repent, we sit with Jesus. I love what Ephesians 2, 4-7 says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. When we come and we're in relationship with Christ, we are actually sitting with him in heavenly realms. He who has an ear, let him hear. So let's ask ourselves a couple questions for us. What is it then? How do we exchange self-sufficiency with Christ-sufficiency? That's really where we're at here. How do we move from this idea that precipitates lukewarmness? See, we're like the Laodiceans. We're living in an affluent culture. We are in an affluent culture. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but if you look around the world and if you've traveled a bit and you've seen things, we are living in an affluent culture, and we need to take seriously these words of Jesus. And here's the question. Are we being influenced by our affluent culture more by our affluent culture than by the cross of Christ? Our world tells us what? All we need to live is the things that we can do in and of ourselves. Your credibility is based on success. Your comfort is found in disposable income, right? What technology can offer. These are the things that we look at. Self-worth is defined by what we have or how people see us. And in doing that, we're putting our hope and our confidence in ourselves alone. And here's something we should be really aware of. Prosperity dulls our need of God. Prosperity dulls our need of God. Think about that for a second. Think about just the patterns in the Old Testament. There was a pattern where God came there was revival, there was renewal, there was prosperity, and then the next generation, and then the next generation fall. The hearts become dull. We become self-satisfied, we become self-sufficient, and that is lukewarmness. And this is what Jesus is talking about. I was thinking about this for us. What, is, what does it look like? You know, what are some things that we can look at? And I was thinking one of the things we can look at is the, uh, the way we use our time and our schedules. What's it look like? What's our schedules look like? What do we spend most of our time on? Because if we really have this 
relationship with God that's intimate and is growing and is moving forward, and it's the zeal that we have rather than this lukewarmness, I think our schedules would have a lot more of what we're doing with the Lord than maybe what we look at now. Ask yourself that question. How many of you have seen the commercial with the gunslingers? Have anybody seen that commercial? They have an argument. They're getting ready to have this. They're going to draw on one another. And then all of a sudden they take out their day timers. Oh, I've got to take my daughter to school. Uh, I've got this. I've got that. And they finally realize, oh, we can't have a duel today. And, well, maybe we can do this on Tuesday. I think sometimes that's the way we are with Jesus. We have to ask ourselves that question. What are our schedules like? How do we take our temperature to see whether or not we're lukewarm? I think one of the big things is our prayer life. It's our prayer life. I have a quote from my father-in-law, Jack Miller. Let me just read that to you. You see, there is prayer and God-given prayer. The former is superficial, the work of orphans who may be religious people, but unwilling to surrender human independence to the Lordship of Christ. God-given prayer and praise have as their essence a waiting on God, a willingness to be wrought upon by the hammer of the fire of the Almighty, and here's the key, until the chains of self-centered desires fall away from the personality and the love of Christ becomes the deepest hunger of the inner life. What kind of prayer life do we have? Is it a consequence prayer life? Something happens and I pray? Is it I'll only pray if I've tried every, everything that I could do and I'm getting no answer, now I'll go to God, and then if I have to wait on God too long, I begin to blame God and I'm angry at God? What's our prayer life like? It's very important for us to be people who are willing to pray for God to be at work. See, Jesus calls us to let him in. So when we pray, do we let him in the room called family? Do we let him in the room called sexuality? Do we let him in the room called money? Do we let him in the workplace? Do we let him in the rooms called dreams and fears? Do we let him in the rooms called past and future? Do we let him in the rooms called anger and depression and wounded? See, that's, that's where we go. That's that coming and supping. That's that walking with him. That's that living. And as we do that, we take all that that we think we can do by playing God and we lay it at Jesus and it's his sufficiency now that carries us. It's his ability to do what we can't ask or imagine. He's the one that nothing's impossible for. He's the one who can reveal love to us. He's the one who can heal our wounds. He's the one who can show us a future completely different than anything we could ever see. He's the one who lifts us out of depression. He's the one who gives us the strength for each day. He's the one who gives us breath to breathe. Amen? And it's out of his sufficiency. It's out of his sufficiency that we live. And as we do that, we hunger for the word. 
The word becomes that which is a daily diet. It's something that we love because we are eating that food which strengthens us. And we want to love other people. And we're concerned for those who don't know Jesus. These are the things that move us away from lukewarmness to having the very heart of Christ himself. This is his call to us today. This is his call to us today. Behold, I knock. Behold, I knock. Worship team can come up. That's why this table is so, so wonderful to be at today. Because the first thing this table does, it presents to us the zeal of the Lord. He did not have a lukewarm heart towards us. But he had a zeal that he would even die for us. Because he loved us so much. That as we come to this table, we see the great zeal that God has for us through Jesus Christ, his son. As we come to this table, we're reminded that when we come to him, he brings to us first forgiveness and reconciliation with God and adoption as sons and daughters. But then daily, he brings relationship. He brings that which we need. And so this table reminds us that we are in relationship with the one who had great zeal for us, that he would die for us, that he would rise again. And in his rising, he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come with conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that Holy Spirit would come to us because we were chosen by God, not for anything we did. And we'd be laid low, and we would see our hearts, and we would know that we had desperate need of a Savior. And when we came and opened up the doors of our heart. He welcomed us in. And this table tells us not only once, but every time, every moment of the day, we have the presence of our Savior with us, and we can be in relationship with Him. Hallelujah. Thank you. This table reminds us of that and strengthens our faith and refreshes our souls. And it's a place where we can come and repent because we can trust that he's going to forgive us again and again and again. I want to say to you out there right now, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. If you're here today, know that the Apostle Paul himself committed murder and he was forgiven. There is no sin that he doesn't forgive. Do not let Satan take away the joy of the meal of faith to you today. But if you are here, and you haven't come, this is the time to come to him with your hearts. In the time that 